Let's pray before we read Matthew 16, 20 through 22. Father, we thank you for this word. We pray that the subject of which we have sung this morning, of which we will read in the text this morning, it is very common to us as Christians that you would use it to strike us afresh and anew this morning of the wonder of the gospel. The cross would never be lost upon your people. That we would marvel and that we'd be struck by all, struck with all, by your mighty work on our behalf. Even now, prepare us to receive your word as you prepared those disciples on the Emmaus Road. May we find that as it's read and as it's preached, that like them, our hearts are warm within us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 16, verses 20 through 22, 23. This is the holy and errant word of God. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The grass withers and the flower fades. The Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Here in Matthew, we have kind of turned a corner in the Gospel of Matthew. From this point, from Caesarea Philippi that we looked at a couple of weeks ago and Now we see it even more so. Everything is moving very quickly to the crucifixion and to Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And so Jesus' speech will become different. His preaching will become much more specific as we enter this portion of the Gospel of Matthew as he focuses the eyes of his disciples upon the cross to come. Uh, The disciples will begin to understand more And his adversaries will become even more relentless, as we even see here in the text this morning. And when you read through this text this morning, most of us have different questions, I think. When you begin to look at this text, there are just different questions that jump off of the page from this text. And I want to look at it that way this morning. I want to ask four questions of the text and seek to answer those four questions. The first is from verse 20. 
After they've confessed that Jesus is the Christ, Peter made that bold confession on behalf of all of the disciples. We then have this charge of secrecy by the Lord Jesus to the disciples. So why this charge of secrecy? Why tell them not to tell other people that He is the Messiah that was promised? I thought that's what this was all about, was recognizing that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the promised Christ to come into the world, and that people needed to hear this so that they could believe. So why? Why tell them to be secretive about it? Well, I think that there are two reasons why Jesus says this. Jesus, in verse 21, says that He will suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed. This was not the expectation of the Jews of Jesus' time. Jews had no understanding that the Messiah would come into the world and that He would suffer and that He would die. And if it had been up to them, if those crowds had heard that Jesus was indeed the Messiah and they'd been convinced of it, they would have hoisted Him upon their shoulders and they would have marched into Jerusalem brandishing swords and would have enthroned Him right there. And if there had been any opposition, they would have just called more people into that mob and they would have rushed into the city. That would have short-circuited the process. Jesus is in a way here saying that, listen, there are wrong expectations. And He doesn't want these wrong expectations to lead to people seeking the wrong means to see the kingdom come. There's no way to short-circuit the way of salvation and Christ securing the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom was always to come by the way of suffering and by way of the cross. They couldn't short-circuit the process. And people would have heard that this Messiah was to suffer and to die, and much like what we see in Peter, they would have thought, well, that's weakness. That's not how the kingdom comes. Little did they understand that there could be no greater strength than for Christ to die in weakness. That this is how the kingdom comes. If Achilles and William Wallace died heroes' deaths, Jesus died the death of a God-man. There's a strength and. It's dying in weakness that surpasses all other things. And this would have been strange to the crowd's ears. It would have been strange, as we see here, to the ears of the disciples. And it's, it's hard for us to comprehend in the 21st century. And as Christians on this side of the cross and on this side of the resurrection, that Jesus, the Christ, would have to suffer and die because we know the Old Testament prophecies. We know that this was told. We know the shadows in the Old Testament of this, of the sacrifice of Isaac and of Jonah that would be in the belly of the whale for three days. We know that the suffering servant and the 
passages in Isaiah refer to the Messiah. But the Jews of Jesus' day didn't. And that includes his disciples. They expected what we'll witness when Christ comes upon the clouds in those last days. They expected that when the Messiah came into the world that every knee would bow and every tongue confess and that every adversary would be laid waste to. That none would be able to stand against him. And that with him would come happiness for his people and eternal, lasting happiness. Wrong expectations. They had wrong expectations about the king and his kingdom. And wrong expectations have shipwrecked many of people's faith. They weren't ready to hear it yet. This isn't what the Messiah was supposed to look like. This isn't what the Christian life was supposed to look like. But it was. And it is. And that can't be short-circuited. Second reason Jesus tells them to remain silent about Him being the Messiah is out of kindness and, and just gentleness to the disciples. Because the disciples aren't ready. They're not ready to go out proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. For goodness sakes, when he is tried, every single one of them will abandon him. When he hangs upon the cross, every single one of them will abandon him. It's not until after his death and then his resurrection that they are ready to go out and boldly proclaim Him. Jesus knows them. He knows that if they went out now boldly proclaiming Him, that if there was even a hint of opposition, that they would cower in fear. They wouldn't have the boldness and the courage to keep going like they would after the resurrection. He knows His sheep. They aren't ready. Peter's made a bold confession of who Jesus is, and he does that for all of the disciples, but they are still very weak in their faith. And so, he is being compassionate. He's being gentle with them. Their faith's real, but it's just not strong enough yet. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus says. I'm gentle and lowly of heart. He's humble and he's not harsh with his people. He'll be cast down for his people, but he won't cast his people down. He's the good shepherd who is gentle with his sheep and carries them in his arms. He doesn't extinguish that smoldering flame or break that bruised reed. He's tender with his people. He never calls his people to more than they can bear in the moment. Never. Though it may feel like it at times. He never leads us into a storm that he doesn't give us the strength and the faith to endure in. Though we may struggle to believe it at times. If we're called to service, he's equipped us for the service. No matter 
how great it might appear to be above us. He's a gentle shepherd with his people. He is not ruthless with his people. He is with his adversaries. He is a lion with them. But he's a shepherd with his people. He's tender with his people. He carries them in his arms. But that doesn't mean he's soft. No, we see that very clearly in the text. You see then, as he rebukes Peter, he, he charges them not to tell anyone that he's the Messiah. And then we're told immediately that he begins telling them from that time he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter hears that and all kinds of alarms are going off in his head. This isn't what it's supposed to be, Jesus. So Peter takes him aside, and he begins to rebuke him. And Jesus rebukes Peter. So our second question, why, why the rebuke of Peter? That, that revelation that the Messiah, this one that, G, that Peter has walked with for three years, that now he has made the bold profession about that, he's going to have to suffer, and he's, he's going to suffer at the hands of the religious elites. That, that blows every circuit in Peter's head. That's hard to imagine. And then you take that to the nth degree where the Messiah, Jesus says, is going to, to die. Yet Peter has no category for this. doesn't seem to be the kingdom winning. That doesn't sound like victory. And so it's this Peter who has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that now says to that Son of God, you're wrong. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter rebukes Jesus. And so Jesus rebukes Peter. As he tells us in verse 23, he says, He turned and said to Peter. This is one of those turns that every son and every daughter of a mother knows. That you say that word that you shouldn't have said or you were disrespectful, and there's just that slow turn. You know it. We've all experienced it. Matthew was there. And when he's writing this, it's like that picture comes back to his mind in, in technicolor. Peter rebukes Jesus, and Jesus turns to Peter. If it's a Hollywood movie, there would be threatening music at this point. Jesus says to Peter, maybe more than says to Peter, erupts at Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. 
transformation. Has anyone ever reached such heights and descended to, to such depths as quickly as Peter does? He's walking on water at one moment, and then he's sinking below the surface in the next moment. He confesses Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God in one moment, and then he blasphemes in the next moment. He's the rock on which Jesus will build the church in one moment. And then he's a stumbling block in the next moment. Why such a strong rebuke? Jesus calls him Satan. Because Peter was doing the work of Satan. He was suggesting the very thoughts of the evil one. Abandon your calling, Jesus. Forsake the Father, Jesus. Give in to temptation, Jesus. Take the easy path, Jesus. You don't have to suffer, Jesus. It's the same temptation that Satan brought to Jesus in the garden. You can have this kingdom without suffering. Temptation aimed at destroying the gospel. No cross, no grace. No grace, no salvation. So Peter goes from a foundation stone to a stumbling block, and Jesus is telling him, you get out of the way. This is the path I have to walk. You get out of the way. Don't try and make me stumble on this path. He says, you're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting them on the things of men. Your tongue is in trouble, Peter, because your mind is in trouble. You've allowed it to go places it shouldn't have gone. It's not informed with truth. And so your mouth, your tongue is speaking lies. Mind is so very important. Man, what he thinks he is. What you listen to in your mind matters. It will shape your heart and it will inform your tongue. So we're to train our minds to think godly thoughts and to think right things about God. This is the lifelong calling of the Christian keep training our minds, to keep growing in our understanding that we might be conformed more and more to the likeness of our Lord. Talk about in the fall when Adam and Eve fell in the garden. Talk about the noetic effects of the fall, the, the fall of the mind. Our mind fell in the fall. It doesn't think rightly naturally anymore. This is one of the reasons I always wanted to pastor in a university city and I'm incredibly thankful to be at University Reformed Church. So I think what, what is happening on that campus just down the road at Michigan State University in a common secular way that the darkness is being penetrated. As people are, are learning, as they're beginning to understand this 
created world that God has revealed himself in, as they are gaining more knowledge and different synapses are firing in their brain and they're making connections. But what is to govern it all is the great thing they have to discover. God is God and Christ is Christ. It is when all of that knowledge comes fitting together and makes complete and perfect sense. And what you thought was amazing about chemistry or biology or about English literature or about the Chinese language, then it just gets lifted up to a higher plane. Never to be content with what we know of God and His truth. We're always to be seeking to grow to know more. When, when Paul is writing his, his magnum opus there, the book of Romans, and he goes through 11 chapters of detailing what it is that you and I are to believe concerning the gospel. He then finally in chapter 12 gets to the admonitions. Now he's going to tell you what to do. He's given you all of the information. Now this is what you do. And what does he say? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. By testing you. May discern the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We are always to be growing in our understanding of God and the things of God. And when we find that our finite minds are brushing up against and in contradiction to His truth, then we better be quick to repent. Peter had a faulty view of God's promises. His little finite mind is brushed up against God's eternal, infallible, inerrant truth. And now he thinks he knows more than God. He rebukes Jesus. Ah, such folly men will go to. Oh, Lord, help me. My opinions are not your opinions. Cause me quickly to repent and be conformed to your likeness and thought. I think of Peter here. I think he, he had so much zeal. Those with zeal are some of the most inspiring people. They're some of the most deadly people, dangerous people to be around. Zeal is good, but zeal without knowledge is absolutely deadly. He's rebuking God. So Jesus makes clear the danger of this. The cross, Peter, don't you understand it's necessary? You're doing the work of Satan. That leads to our third question. Why is the cross necessary? 
Listen, we can disagree about a lot of things in the church. We can disagree about church government. We can disagree about the sacraments. We can disagree about spiritual gifts. We can disagree about all kinds of things, but we can't disagree about the importance of the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. You deny the substitutionary death of Jesus upon the cross, you've denied the faith. You can't have Jesus apart from the Christ crucified. They're the same. His death on the cross was absolutely necessary. It was necessary because it was prophesied. And it was prophesied because it was decreed. And it was decreed because there was no other possible way. It was prophesied. It was necessary because it was prophesied. There have been those in the history of the church that said Jesus had no concept, no consciousness of the fact that he was the Messiah until this moment at Caesarea Philippi, had no consciousness of the fact that he was the Messiah who had to die until this moment at Caesarea Philippi. And that is nonsense. Jesus, time and again to this point in the Gospels, makes it clear that the Jews' expectation for the Messiah were wrong. He applies Isaiah's prophecies to himself when he stands up in that Jewish synagogue and he reads from the, from the law, he, he reads Isaiah's prophecy about himself. We've already seen in Matthew just a few weeks ago that he spoke of being in the belly of the earth like Jonah was in the belly of the whale. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, he speaks of persecution that his followers will face. He always knew that the kingdom included persecution and the cross. And in his humanity, he knew this because it was prophesied. He knew. He knew that he was the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. His mind was dominated by that. And why was it prophesied? Because it was decreed by the triune Godhead. The Son in His deity has known this was His calling in the incarnation from eternity past. The Father and the Son and the Spirit covenanted together to save mankind this way. And that the Son would carry out that plan by becoming human flesh and suffering and dying for the sake of sinners. It was necessary because it was prophesied. It was prophesied because it was decreed. And it was decreed because there was no other possible way. It's only at the cross that the love and the wisdom and the righteousness of God could be upheld. God is a moral being. He's righteous. He can't deny that. He can't just let sin be. He can't wave His hand and dismiss it. Or He wouldn't be righteous. 
He has to punish sin. He has to pour out his wrath upon sin, or he denies his very essence. There is a necessity within God himself to pour out his wrath upon sin. He's righteous. If he's going to manifest his love towards sinners, if he's going to forgive the guilty, it must be according to the standard of righteousness. There's no other possible way. Friends, Jesus' crucifixion was not an afterthought. I had a professor in seminary. I can remember him saying it. I, I can see him clearly before my face, standing up before the classroom and saying, if the Jews had accepted Jesus when he walked into Jerusalem, there would have been no cross. No. It was absolutely necessary. Romans 8.32, Pastor Kevin will take us through that passage next Sunday night as we work our way through Romans. And in that glorious text, Paul says this, he says, He, speaking of the Father, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. If there had been another way, the Father would have done it. He who did not spare His own Son, if he could have spared his son, he would have done it. This is the most costly of actions by God, the costliest cost. If there had been another way, he would have done it. But there wasn't. The cross, the righteousness, and the wisdom, and the love of God are brought together in all their splendor and majesty. had to be this way. James Denny, a Scottish theologian in the previous century, spoke about the necessity of the cross in this way. He illustrated it by saying, imagine I was sitting on the edge of a pier and watching the lake that was before me, and imagine a man came running up to me and as he was running past me, said, I'm going to show you how much I love you. And then he jumped off the end of the pier to his death in the lake. He said, that wouldn't be a, a sign of love. That'd be a sign of insanity. The only way it's a sign of love is if it was absolutely necessary to save me because I couldn't save myself. It had to be absolutely necessary and something I couldn't do myself. It had to be done to save us. Verse 21, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed. He must. 
He came to do what had been decreed. As his son, he knew this. The disciples didn't understand it, not yet. But they will. But if you're like me, when you read this text, you think, but what about the Garden of Gethsemane? That's the fourth question I want to answer. Not here in the text, but I think we have to ask it. What about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane then? Doesn't Jesus do the same thing as Peter when he prays, take this cup from me? There are those today, especially in the last, I would say, five years or so, who have brazenly argued that Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane faced inner temptation, that there was a a temptation that came from within him. He was wrestling with whether to do the Father's will. And why do they argue this? Because it helps their own case. Because there are inner temptations that they are struggling with, that are disordered, whether even they would recognize as evil and intent. They want to be able to say that that inner temptation itself is not sin itself. And so they make the argument from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane because we all have to agree as Christians that Jesus was without sin. He was like us in every respect, but without sin. And so if you can say Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was tempted inwardly and was wrestling with inward temptation, then you can say, well, my inward temptations themselves are not sin because Jesus didn't sin. Listen, Christ is not repeating what Peter did here. He's not wrestling internally with whether to do the will of his Father or not. He's not wrestling with something that is wicked and evil or sinful in the Garden of Gethsemane. There is... No such temptation going on within him. No doubt Satan is tempting him from without. He is being assaulted from without. He was every single day of his earthly life assaulted and and tempted from without, even as we see in this text from Peter, one of his closest disciples. And it's clear in the Garden of Gethsemane he's wrestling, but not with inward temptation. Jesus is absolutely committed to doing the will of his Father. This is more than evident in the garden. He he begins his prayer in the garden with, My Father, if it be possible. And he ends his prayer in the garden of Gethsemane with, Not as I will, but as you will. There's no inner temptation within him to abandon the will of his Father. He wants to do the will of his Father. What is happening? Well, in his humanity, Christ is dreading what awaits him. He's praying for the strength 
in its humanity to do the very will of God. And God the Father answers his prayer as we see in the Gospels, he sends an angel to minister to him. He was never, never entertaining a sinful thought. He was never thinking about not doing the will of his Father. He rightfully does not want to be made sin as the Holy One of God. It's a right desire not to want to drink his Father's wrath. It would have been wrong if he was comfortable with being made sin. In the garden, he's not desirous to do that which is wrong, but he's desirous to do that which is right. He always desires to do his Father's will. I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Sterl Bach, a New Testament scholar, another one of my seminary professors, a different one from before, said it this way. In other words, Jesus is requesting a potential alteration in God's plan where the cup of wrath is dispensed with but only if it is possible and within God's will. And in fact, Jesus says, if it is necessary, it is necessary. And the Father answers the prayer because immediately they come out to arrest Jesus. It's necessary. And the Son willingly goes. It was necessary to save sinners. I'm always astounded when I read the Gospels and we, we hear of Jesus heading to Jerusalem. The Gospel writers will say this over and over, and it's so easy to, to move past. He, he's headed to Jerusalem. But the incredible courage, the incredible faith in His Father, incredible love, that he continues to march down that path knowing what awaits him. There's none like him. But he does it for his bride, and he does it for the glory of his Father. On that cross, the perfect bridegroom becomes sin for his bride. The shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The head of the body is bowed for it. The light of the world is shrouded in darkness. The source, he who is the life of life, encounters death. died because it was the only way that we could live. Because he experienced that death, you and I never will. Our faith is in Christ. Death has lost its sting. We don't walk through the valley of death when we die. 
walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's momentary. In a moment, we are with our God in glory. And this is only possible because he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed, and he did it. Peter, we'll write later in 1 Peter, when he then understands, he will say this, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It's the very heart of the good news. It was decreed was prophesied because it was the only way we could be saved. We rejoice in the cross this day. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, oh, we give praise to you, to you and the Son and the Spirit. That you covenanted in eternity past to save fallen men, women, and children such as us. Lord Jesus, we stand in awe that you willingly went to Jerusalem because you knew that you must, that you must suffer, and that you must die. You must be resurrected on the third day so that you could save sinners such as us. Thank you, O Lord of glory, for living and dying for us. Ah, may we give you praise with all that we are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.